You're listening to Governance Matters, a Corporate Secretary Magazine podcast. This episode is made possible by Computer Share Georgeson. In my view, we've already waited too long to deal with this climate crisis. We can't wait any longer. Uh, we see it with our own eyes, we feel it, we know it in our bones. This is Governance Matters, the podcast for corporate secretaries. I'm Taylor Hughes. And I'm Jeff Cassette. Few issues have risen to the fore in global markets like the matters around ESG and sustainability. And with the Biden administration promising new rules for ESG disclosures and better enforcement when it comes to market integrity issues, U.S. corporate boards are bracing for what might be a whole new governance paradigm. And it's time to act. And I might note parenthetically, if you notice the attitude of the American people toward greater impetus on focusing on climate change and doing something about it has increased. Fact is, corporate governance has perhaps become more political than ever. The past year's events haven't just shaken up how investors look at their companies. Citizens and their governments are scrutinizing corporate behavior like never before. Governance teams need to be sure their boards are aware of these changing relationships. So just what is the political context? Where will change come from? And how far will it go? As we see Biden appointees, like SEC nominee Gary Gensler, go through their congressional hearings, it's clear Democrats and Republicans won't see eye to eye. There's no doubt that Mr. Gensler knows a lot about the securities markets. But based on his record, I'm concerned that he will stray from the SEC's tradition of bipartisanship by using the agency's regulatory powers to advance a liberal social agenda on issues such as climate change, political spending, and racial inequality. As we get down to some intense policy and regulatory reset, today's first guest is remarkably well-positioned to help sort things out and project ahead. Jeffrey Siegel is head of U.S. and public regulatory policy at BNP Paribas. Basically, he's their man in Washington. We'll get an up-close view on the political wheels spinning now in D.C. and what kinds of ESG rulemaking COSEX might expect. But climate and social issues aren't alone in shaping the discussion over risk and regulation. And as the GameStop slash Robinhood saga highlighted, new technologies can radically complicate even old policy frameworks. In the show's second half, we'll hear from Paul Kahn. Paul is president of ComputerShare's Global Capital Markets Group. He's just penned a series of white papers with ideas he hopes can plug the gaps exposed by the GameStop trade. We'll find out later what sorts of reforms he has in mind. But now, here's Jeffrey Siegel on what a Biden administration might mean for boards. Jeff Siegel, welcome to Governance Matters. Thank you. Good to be with you. Jeff, I do want to get to your thoughts on where we're headed in terms of governance and ESG disclosure. Um, but first, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by your, your background in international trade negotiations. You have represented the U.S. as lead negotiator um, in the financial services end for a whole slew of trade agreements. And it is my apprehension that trade is about the most fraught and complicated activity in all of human endeavor. Um, so that's why I think when it comes to taking action on corporate governance, getting from A to B is, in comparison, going to be a relative cinch. 
I suspect you may think otherwise, uh, but um, I'm curious to know how you compare your experience with the two exercises. Well, first, thanks again for, for having me. And I should start out by saying that uh, the time that I spent at the U.S. Treasury Department uh, as an international trade negotiator was uh, really, um, it was really an incredible honor uh, to represent the U.S. Uh, and uh, to sit at those negotiating tables with uh, colleagues from around the world. And uh, as you uh, as you expected, it's, uh, it is a very uh, complicated and challenging endeavor to reach consensus uh, with people from uh, other jurisdictions, especially uh, there's one agreement that I was working on, the Trade and Services Agreement, uh, that had representatives from, I believe, 22 other uh, jurisdictions uh, and trying to get consensus on anything with 22 other parties that have uh, that are part of uh, other governments that need to consult with capital on uh, almost every attribution uh, does take time. But you know, one thing I, I would say, and and people have asked me, uh, you know, the question you asked in different ways. But uh, you know, I, I would say that the the thing that has really surprised me from my government experience to uh, my current job at, at BNP Paribas is just how similar a lot of the, uh, the challenges are in both uh, the government and in the private sector. Uh, and in particular, you know, anytime you have a large organization or a large group of people where you're trying to reach consensus, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's a whole series of, of very similar challenges. And, uh, in many ways, they're they're not that different. Uh, you know, there's uh, there's certain lessons that I, I took from the the trade experience, but they actually apply to uh, working on Capitol Hill. They are applied to uh, you know to working within the U.S. government, not just uh, negotiating with with other jurisdictions. And you know, at least to my surprise, they they have been uh, they, they've also applied. They also apply to. Uh, to, to working within a, a large organization. I mean, BNP Paribas is uh, a large uh, European bank that has about 200,000 employees based in 70 uh, different countries mm-hmm. uh, and has a significant U.S. presence. Uh, but there's, uh, so it, it is a large organization, just like the U.S. Treasury Department is a large organization. And you know, at least some of the lessons that I, I took and that I, I try to apply every day is, you know, first, you have to do your homework. You have to know the issues. You have to uh, understand, uh, you know, the substance of what you're you're trying to negotiate or the end uh, result, uh, the goal you're trying to achieve from a policy basis or a, an advocacy basis. Uh, you need to know the players and who the, the key decision makers are within the institution or within your, for you're doing international trade with your counterparts. Uh, and who, you know, who they listen to. Uh, and then, you know, building consensus is, it really starts very small. You, you need to, you know, first try to figure out what are the, the key ideas that, that people can agree with. And then you, you essentially build concentric circles of agreement until eventually, uh, what starts out as, you know, some, some preliminary ideas becomes the, the consensus for the organization. And applying that then to um, to to our, our current struggle, I would suggest that that getting consensus might be a little trickier. There may, there may not be a, a a sort of a Venn diagram where where goals uh, you can find something where goals are are are, are common. Um, you know, 
kind of moving to our central topic, um, I guess it's safe to say the administration will have a different perspective on ESG disclosure regulation uh, than the former one. From all I've gathered, uh, attitudes expressed by Biden and Gensler and um, the acting chair uh, all seem to point to a more prescriptive approach. What do you... What do you see as sort of the landscape in Washington right now? Where are we in the conversation, that consensus-building conversation? It looks like the Democrats have all the, the, the levers of control, but maybe not. And we've got a slew of climate and social issues to deal with. I'm wondering if you can just sort of maybe speak to where we stand now and, and sort out some of the recent developments um, and, and the top issues uh, you see coming down the pike this year, and and mostly where where the action will be um, in terms of who where these decisions will be made. The situation in Washington is uh, it, it's complex as always. Hmm. Our uh, the, the U.S. government is is one of the more um, uh, complicated governance systems, and there's a lot of different levers of, of power and uh, a lot of different players and uh, reaching consensus is difficult. In fact, many ways, I, I used to joke that in many ways, the U.S. government is set up to make it very difficult to achieve consensus. <laughs> and it is only in those areas uh, where there's either some type of national emergency or some some mass uh, public consensus where the government can act, especially legislatively. You know, and that is the case in the best of times. The situation in 2021 is particularly complex because there is uh, a new administration, uh, the Biden administration, but there and there is also uh, newly new, new Democratic control of uh, the Congress. Uh, so the the House of Representatives was in Democratic control from 2018, uh, and then the Senate uh, after the January 5th runoffs. Uh, runoff elections in Georgia, a flip to at least nominal Democratic control. But in the House, the the margins uh, actually tightened from where they were in 2000, uh, after the 2018 election. So uh, Speaker Pelosi has a a very small margin of error in terms of passing legislation through the House. And then the Senate is the absolute slimmest of margins because it's 50-50, a 50-50 split, which means that uh, with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, breaking the tie vote, that Democrats operationally control the chamber. Uh, but the Senate is uh, is really an institution that works on consensus. Even just running uh, the schedule requires unanimous consent and a lot of back and forth between the majority and the minority leader. And with a 50 a 50-50 split, any member of the, the Senate can can hold up the whole process. So it becomes a very delicate and, and challenging dance on uh, what uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer can can achieve. You know, but but that said, I think the, the Democrats uh, seem to uh, have learned some of the lessons of the last time this happened that people uh, people don't always uh, think about. But in 2000, uh, 2001, after the 2000 election, there was a 50-50 split, which gave the uh, Republicans control under George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. And about six months in, uh, one of the Republican senators uh, was concerned, had some concerns about the Republican tax cut plan, 
and essentially became an independent and started caucusing with the Democrats. So overnight, the Senate turned from Republican control to Democratic control. And that is something that could happen here in reverse. And the Democrats uh, are well aware of that. So, you know, you you kind of see uh, the urgency uh, on some of the legislative priorities for uh, for President Biden. So recently, as as you know, the, there was a, a massive one point nine trillion dollar COVID relief package uh, that that passed uh, both houses of, of Congress by the slimmest of margins and was signed into law, mm-hmm. uh, and signed into law using a, a process that that's a little arcane uh, in Washington speak uh, called reconciliation because. In the Senate, uh, any member of the Senate has the right to to unlimited debate, uh, which is sometimes referred to as the filibuster. And to cut off that debate uh, requires a cloture vote of, of 60 senators saying we want to proceed uh, to the actual discussion and the underlying substance of the, the legislation. Uh, and there's a handful of ways you can get around that filibuster rule. I mean, there's been a lot of talk in the press of uh, possibly eliminating that rule. Uh, but it's it's something that has been a tradition of the Senate for, for a very long time, and, and not all the, even the Democratic senators are on board with getting rid of that. So that leaves a very narrow path of, of avoiding the use of the filibuster through something that's called reconciliation, uh, which uh, would allow the majority to advance uh, legislation just with, with a simple majority as opposed to the, the supermajority to override the filibuster. Uh, and it's the, the reconciliation process is really designed uh, for, you know, given the complexities of the budget to to advance complex uh, fiscal legislation. So you can't uh, under under certain provisions, you can't include a lot of policy writers in these bills. If it, but if it affects spending one way or another, either tax cut or tax increase or spending uh, cut or spending increase, you can do that through reconciliation. But there's limited limited things you, you can do with it. So hmm. co- the COVID relief package passed that way. It remains to be seen exactly whether the next item up on the agenda, which is really the core of President Biden's ad- agenda from the campaign on, on building back better, building the economy back up in a stronger way through infrastructure or climate resilience and investments in human capital, uh, whether that is going to be through reconciliation that relies probably on a, a narrower area of, uh, of legislation uh, or ideas or something a bit more robust that would get and garner uh, Republican support uh, and beyond uh, and possibly be something that, uh, that could get uh, 60 votes. So, you know, I think that, you know, what, what does all this mean? You know, legislatively, uh, there are these areas, a handful of areas uh, where there, there may be some action. Uh, we've seen it on COVID. Uh, it's possible on infrastructure and climate. But beyond that, it may be very difficult to get consensus. And, and things like immigration may be just tougher to achieve. And then, you know, with the Senate control being, with the Democrats in control of the Senate, what it also means is that it likely speeds up the confirmation process for President Biden's nominees. And for the most part, his nominees have gotten through, uh, except for the OMB uh, director nominee, Neera Tandon, who, who um, uh, had some difficulty getting getting support from a handful of the Democratic senators in addition to the uh, the Republicans, so that, that nominee, um, so New York Hendon dropped out. But for the most part, uh, they've been able to get their uh, their vote through uh, their uh, their nominees through. 
So then where does that leave the, the Biden administration? Because there's some legislative activity, but likely most of the action will, will be in the regulatory space and the executive orders. Uh, and, you know, for, for your membership, you know, boards really should prepare themselves for a period of pretty active regulatory activity uh, and increased supervisory expectations. Uh, you know, we've uh, a lot of the nominees to the regulatory Just Just to cut in for a moment, Jeff, that's, yeah. you're, you're saying that Congress is... is I know that some congressional Democrats have, have been promoting legislation, and it may may come to the floor at some point. But it's basically Congress is a sideshow, and and the action will be happening at the uh, the SEC and 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 through um, executive orders. Or is that too broad? It remains to be seen whether Congress. I I, I would never really call Congress a sideshow <laughs> because Congress plays uh, a very significant role in the policymaking process, even when things are just where a lot of the energy is focused on the, the regulatory side. And, you know, there there's going to be, I think, an effort to push a pretty robust legislative agenda through the Congress. And it's just, it's not clear that it's going to get uh, the type of bipartisan support uh, that, uh, that, that will result in a lot of legislation being signed into, a lot of bills being signed into law. Uh, I think that's what I'm saying. But, you know, that we we know that on the regulatory side, those constraints don't exist. I mean, once the Biden administration appointees get um, come into office, uh, you know, they each have, you know, different statutory uh, obligations and, and mandates for each agency. But, you know, and then there, for the financial regulatory agencies, some of them have boards. Uh, the same thing with some of the other uh, agencies, independent agencies, where uh, there's a three-two uh, Democrat-Republican split of the commissioners, but you know that that those are areas where it will be easier for for President Biden to push uh, his agenda. And then, of course, there are a series of of executive orders that the president uh, could always advance. And uh, President Biden has uh, taken he he has used that authority uh, quite aggressively in in the first few weeks and mm-hmm. uh, months of his time in office. Uh, perhaps more than almost any other president in, in recent memory. I think last time I checked, there were at least 40 executive uh, actions on a whole series of of different uh, bills, which really are uh, different ideas, which direct the executive branch to to work on on various uh, various initiatives. I mean, things like COVID, on economic relief, supply chains, healthcare. Climate, immigration, uh, LGBTQ rights, uh, various uh, you know racial equality, social equality measures. I mean, these are big things, and a lot of these are already uh, the processes are in place through uh, through the executive orders for the the agencies to start taking action right now. But in, but in terms of ESG regulation and disclosure, is is that the locus of activity for for that kind of change? Do you know what I mean? Have We're we seen expecting. anything coming coming out of uh, related to that in terms of a uh, um, uh, administrative executive order? So there was uh, there were a series of executive orders related to climate. Uh, one involved uh, just rejoining the Paris Climate Accords, and then there's a broader executive order that uh, essentially directs a whole of government approach to addressing the climate crisis. And that is something we're expecting to permeate through every aspect of of what what the Biden administration is is focused on. Uh, on the regulatory side, it, you know, I, we are expecting a lot of the 
you know, environmental, uh, social governance ideas to come through regulation rather than legislation for all the reasons that we just talked about mm-hmm. a few minutes ago. Uh, we have seen uh, the SEC was, is probably the, the first out of the gate on the federal level with uh, acting chair Allison Lee uh, the other day giving a speech outlining the SEC's agenda, uh, particularly on, on climate disclosures, uh, corporate disclosures, and uh, directing the SEC staff to also also look at revising the materiality frameworks. So these are, you know, these are our, our efforts that are, are coming kind of from an acting chair with a 2-2 commission before Gary Gensler is, uh, is confirmed by the Senate. But it's, it's laying the groundwork for the staff to start thinking about these, uh, these issues uh, and also to start soliciting some at least informal ways of, of uh, collecting industry and public input on, on what to do here. It looks like yes. It looks like obviously they, they've hit the ground the ground running um, at the SEC. What do you expect Gensler to do? What would you like to see him do? Um, it, it looks like he's got fairly free reign uh, to do whatever he wants to do. What do you think he'll do? We expect uh, Gary Gensler to to be pretty active uh, at the at the SEC and. There are, of course, uh, challenges and, and complexities of advancing rulemaking uh, through not just the SEC, but through any of the, the administrative and uh, the executive agencies or the independent agencies. And there are a lot of different processes that need to be to be addressed in order to, to accomplish a full-time or full rulemaking. Uh, so we expect that will play out. But you know, we're we're expecting a whole uh, range of uh, of potential regulatory developments from the SEC. You know, on on ESG, you know, I'd say there are probably a few things that might be of interest to to your members in terms of you know what boards or corporate secretaries uh, or managers should should be expecting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're we're expecting a fair bit of activity on uh, ESG. So, but what does that mean? It's not just the E is the one that has gotten a lot of attention uh, in the environment and, and climate, uh, which is clearly a focus and and uh, probably one of the, the major priorities. Uh, but corporate disclosure, of course, is broader than that. And you know, it, it looks it, it may look at issues of human capital uh, if we if we can read some of the tea leaves, some different speeches that have come out from key SEC leaders and SEC staff. Uh, you know, looking at different issues of diversity and, and social justice. So, you know, what does that mean? Is that disclosure, board compositions, areas of procurement, uh, you know, some some additional pressure from the legislative side? There, there are things that that may be coming in that space. Uh, and then, uh, just more broadly, not um, you know, probably from all the regulators, not not just uh, the SEC, but I think we're we're anticipating. That uh, there will be additional scrutiny on uh, on companies uh, on you know uh, for enforcement for conduct issues, looking for for address looking for ways to address bad behavior. And so all those things. I mean, these are these are big issues. I mean, these are issues that uh, that boards uh, and companies need to take seriously, get buy-in from the very top, uh, and they're they're kind of enterprise-wide. Uh, challenges where uh, you know you need to think about these things early. 
Yeah, right. I guess there are things they can, there are priority policy issues, essentially a slam dunk, uh, which boards might want to take steps to get ahead of now. Um, I'm sort of wondering, though, how far is all this going to go? How far towards stakeholder capitalism or, or at least towards a more prescriptive rather than the traditional approach? Where do you, where do you see the sort of the quickest, most radical change happening? One thing about the, the federal government from my own experience, both in the executive branch and working uh, for both the House and the Senate, is that nothing and nothing happens that quickly in Washington, no matter how how quickly people want it to happen or how much the outside world thinks it should happen. And a lot of these things are going to take time. You know, once once uh, the feedback is received on the, the FCC's request for comment from Acting Chair Lee, which is a 90-day process, then that's when the real, you know, the real organ of the, the FCC rulemaking uh, will will start um, going into full effect. But it takes time. There's cost-benefit analyses that need to be performed. There's, uh, you know, a review of consistency with existing regulations, uh, and and all these things uh, are are complex. And there's a lot of give and take. There will be uh, hearings. There already have been hearings uh, in Congress about uh, focusing on different issues, whether it was Gary Gensler's confirmation hearing or uh, through uh, hearings and like the Senate Banking Committee on, on climate. I mean, these are issues of strong importance to the every uh, a lot of stakeholders in Washington. So there's going to be a fair bit of give and take. Uh, and you know, one thing I would I would mention. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about the the divisions uh, in the the House and the Senate, and mm-hmm. you know that that can play into the regulatory side as well. The executive branch is you know is controlled by by the by President Biden. Uh, his appointees have the decision making, uh, the tie breaking votes in the the key commissions, but it it is often difficult to, to reach consensus. Uh, and that is going to take time and, and a lot of, uh, a lot of work. So we're, you know, I think there's, there are ways in which, uh, the, these agendas can be advanced, but it may take time. Uh, you know, the, the Federal Reserve is, is ramping up its, its work on, particularly on, on climate risk and, and how, uh, how it, uh, you know, how, how climate could impact the super the institutions that the the Fed supervises mm-hmm. in terms of risk management or different types of scenario analysis and the long term effects of climate, uh, and that that's going to require a lot of data. And they're they're starting that process and and working with you know with the the international their international uh, counterparts and the other U.S. regulators. But there's these things are gonna, they're going to take time. Uh, you know I think we're we're expecting more activity to to pick up towards the second half of. 2021, uh, but 2022 may be, may be pretty active. And, you know, the people who work in these agencies and the leadership that has uh, been appointed by President Biden and then the other uh, appointments, you know, they know how, how Washington works. They know that there's going to be a, a midterm election in 2022. And there's, you know, if history is any guide, there's uh, a significant chance that Republicans could take Back control of the house. So they have a two-year window, basically. Control. Exactly, exactly. So there may be this two-year window where some of these more uh, some some of the Biden initiatives can can be advanced without 
the fear that the leadership on the Hill will call up the, the leadership of the agencies or the staff at the agencies and put pressure on them in the other direction. And, you know, we've already seen uh, some areas of backlash, especially on things like climate, uh, where uh, the Republican members of the, the Senate Banking Committee and uh, a number of Republicans in the House have sent letters uh, to the Federal Reserve and have uh, questioned uh, different nominees about uh, getting too far over uh, what is, you know, viewed as the core of the like the Federal Reserve mandate on uh, looking at inflation and, and full employment and, and whether climate fits into that at all. So it's, you know, the... the they think they're getting too far over their skis, basically, is what the Republicans are saying about, about, about whether the SEC should be even involved in, I think they call it um, uh, social engineering, but uh, maybe they have another word for it. Yeah, I mean, there's, that's, that is, uh, there, there's a lot of, it's a balancing act, and I, I think it's, uh, it's going to require a lot of, um, a lot of consensus building to make sure that any changes that go into effect here uh, are long lasting. Otherwise, there, there could be some pressure to, to unwind them, uh, in short order. So it's gonna, you know, uh, Gary Gensler is, uh, is an extraordinarily talented public servant, uh, who will, who, who understands how agencies work. He understands how rulemaking and legislation works and, and how different political pressures can affect all of that. And, you know, if anyone can get these types of rules through, it's, it's Gary Gensler, but, uh, you know, everyone's going to have to be very careful uh, and do it in a way that that is long lasting, especially given uh, the importance of these issues and and how challenging they're going to be for the, hmm. the private sector to uh, to comply with some of these uh, some of these new regulations. So Europe has a track record uh, in in this. Your bank is international. You have a track record in sustainable finance. What can we learn from 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 what has already gone on in Europe, and how closely can we expect whatever is finally produced in Washington to resemble uh, something approaching a, a a global sort of disclosure standard? So that is the question of the day, uh, hmm. and BNP, as you know, has uh, has taken a leadership role uh, on these issues for for many years, uh, as has Europe, uh, and where. We work to be the, you know, the premier global bank that's promoting the transition to clean energy and addressing climate change. Uh, we've been committed to the UN Sustainable Development Goals for years and directed, you know, 180 billion dollars in, in direct financing um, for that uh, by the end of uh, 2019 or some, from the end of 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we've also been carbon neutral as a bank uh, since 2018. So, you know, there, this is something that is a part of the core of the, the, the bank's ethos. And, you know, even if you look at, at BNP's logo, it's actually um, the bank for a changing world and a reference to climate change and, and what is, and, and the, the 21st century. And uh, the logo is, uh, it's actually a green box that has little stars that become uh, become birds. So it's, this is, this is really a, a core aspect of, of our business model, uh, and both, uh, and the, the, the commitments of our leadership in, in Paris and, and the United States and, and all around the world. So this is something that is, uh, of, of significant importance to, to the bank. Um, 
you know, and, and Europe has, as you, you mentioned, taken the lead on these issues for, for years. Uh, you know, they've already put in place frameworks uh, or have started the process of, of uh, implementing frameworks on um, definitions and taxonomies, uh, looking at, you know, how uh, loan portfolios should, uh, should be aligned with, uh, with, with the Paris climate goals. I mean, all these things are, uh, they, they've been worked through the, the legislative process in Europe and continue to be a focus of the legislative and uh, regulatory processes, both at the European, European level uh, and at the member state level. Uh, so, you know, there, there's been a lot happening. And, you know, I think when, we, when we're looking at what is happening in the U.S., the U.S. is a little bit, is, is kind of now getting into what, uh, what Europe has done for, for a while, uh, but, you know, that is, in many ways, it's, it, it's going to be a, a benefit for both the, the policy issues and a benefit to the U.S. regulators and the U.S. authorities because they don't have to reinvent the wheel. Right. Uh, there are frameworks that are in place, uh, not just in Europe, but frameworks that have been uh, discussed in, at the international level for a good number of years. There's uh, an organization called, the, for example, there's a organization called the Network for Greening the Financial System, which is kind of a coalition of central banks that was started uh, a few years ago, you know, almost as a parallel to the, the Basel process that looks at, uh, at capital and broad-based uh, international uh, prudential regulation mm-hmm. to try to come to some international consensus on some of these issues. There's uh, a group called the Task Force uh, for Climate Disclosure that is has looked at, you know, what, what should companies be disclosing? And there are a whole range of different, you know, standard setting bodies and, and entities that are, you know, looking at, at how to, you know, how best to, to kind of create convergence here. So, you know, when we're thinking about, you know, what, what are the lessons for the U.S., uh, you know, first, I think the, at least in Europe, there was, a, and among, the community uh, that that is focused, the ESG community, there there was a a, a real um, excitement about the U.S. rejoining the Paris Accord, uh, about the Federal Reserve officially becoming a member of the NGFS, you know, and just recognizing that the U.S. can be helpful in advancing globally agreed standards. And in terms of lessons learned, you know, first it's really critical to have globally consistent and harmonized approaches here. Uh, and that's particularly true with respect to uh, disclosures, uh, you know, because if there's some type of standardized disclosure about terms, you know, and, and metrics, you know, that can, that has a number of effects. First of all, it, it can provide a great deal of consistency and information for investors and for, uh, the market, uh, if everyone is uh, speaking the same language uh, and and understands the same information about uh, what corporations are doing uh, to reduce their own uh, carbon footprint and what what their activities are doing to contribute to uh, to to addressing climate change, you know all these things are are really are really important just for for market discipline. So if all of a sudden every jurisdiction has different standards here, that's going to be very hard for, uh, you know, global companies like ours, but also global companies, uh, not just in the financial space, but uh, multinational corporates uh, and how they 
how they run these disclosure operations. So I think to the extent there can be uh, harmonization on areas like disclosure or defined taxonomies, what, what it means to be green, what it means to uh, do ESG investments, uh, that will just benefit the, the market uh, more broadly, in addition to the goals that the regulators and the policymakers may have uh, to address um, to address uh, climate change. So, you know, it, at least for the first for the first set of consultations and and requests for comment from the SEC, it seems like they're taking a thoughtful approach here, uh, soliciting views on what could work uh, to best advance these goals and. Uh, at least my, uh, you know, and these, these are areas where banks in particular, but, uh, many corporations, not just in Europe, but, uh, in the U.S. and, and globally, uh, are, are committed to and have been working on for a good number of years, uh, privately. Uh, so there's, uh, there, there's a lot to be learned, a lot of, uh, a lot of information and, and experience to be shared between the public and private sectors. And between uh, you know Europe and the U.S. and and people all around the world who've been working on these issues for quite some time. So I guess there there are already outreach between the United States and and counterparts in, in Europe, um, and I presume that it's a good bet that we're going to come up with a global disclosure standard. Um, pardon my ignorance, but I I don't really know what that is in the in the U.K. and in Europe. And but I'm wondering, just sort of getting a little nerdy. How would oh, will it be? Will the SEC say, okay, we're going to follow the SASB or TCFD, or we're going to sort of start from scratch and control it in house, or we're going to work very closely with with other countries to come up with something completely new? Um, that- so the answer to that question is, uh, no, or those questions is that nobody knows yet. Oh. And it really remains to be seen. And I, I'm not sure I would fully agree with the statement that, uh, it looks like we're definitely on the, on the road to a global standard here. It's oh. possible. Uh, I think the, the market would benefit from that. I think the, you know, on a personal level, uh, the, you know, the, the, the policy that uh, that the regulators may be seeking to achieve here would benefit from greater harmonization and standardization. Uh, but, you know, these are, uh, each jurisdiction has its own agencies, its own mandates from their, uh, their populations about what they can do and what they can't do. They have to be responsive to their taxpayers and their voters. And, you know, they operate within their own different processes and, it's not easy. One thing I found in during my time in, in government is that sometimes uh, the most difficult and challenging part of a negotiation is where uh, is not actually between the United States and other countries. It's it's within the U.S. interagency process and getting consensus within the various agencies on what text should be the U.S. policy. So. That, if that is any guide, you know that is that is sort of where we are here, and you know there I think will be we're, we're expecting you know for example Treasury to play a role in trying to coordinate some of these uh, issues, especially in the financial regulatory space among the various uh, agencies. We know that the Financial Stability Oversight Council, uh, which is essentially a, you know a group of all the heads of the major financial. Uh, regulatory agencies that they're looking at at climate uh, in their uh, their upcoming meeting, 
so, you know, these are, there, there is likely going to be a lot of information sharing, but each of these agencies has its own mandate and it's going to be really complex and uh, require a great deal of commitment to get uh, a consensus both uh, within each agency and then within the U.S. government uh, more broadly and then internationally. Uh, and there are, as you said, all of these different standards, all these different standard setting bodies that are controlled by different, uh, that, that, you know, operate in, in different ways. And it, it's, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be very interesting to see how this all plays out and uh, which standards become the, the globally agreed standards. Uh, and it, it, it probably, it probably is important to say that uh, a lot of this, while Europe is further ahead, in the U.S., a lot of the thinking on this is still in its infancy internationally on how to address ESG and particularly climate and uh, getting to a solution that works in this complex space is going to be a really ch- a really interesting challenge. Jeff, any other um, markers to watch out for now um, in terms of which way the wind is blowing? What sort of headlines should we be looking out now from coming out of Washington in the next couple of months? It's important to pay attention to the various regulatory consultations. Uh, there's There could be a, a good number that come out uh, in the next year or so, and they, they may have pretty broad-reaching implications for boards uh, and, and for the way uh, that companies operate, um, you know, especially on, on areas like climate, but also... Uh, diversity and inclusion and governance. Uh, you know, I, it's important for for all companies uh, to really think through and, and have a have a good sense of what what is happening in Washington, uh-huh. in particular, uh, regardless of where they are domiciled. I mean, BNP is a an international bank that has a significant uh, U.S. presence, and we have worked about fourteen thousand people who work here. We have a uh, investment uh, banking, a corporate investment banking arm, as well as a retail banking operation through um, Bank of the West, which uh, is wholly owned by uh, by BNP, uh, and we're in lots of different states. So we we have a an interest in washing Washington, but also it's you know we're part of a global system, and uh, what happens in in DC is uh, is really it's it's still very critical to the rest of the international. Um, the international regulatory and, and political environment. So, you know, I think looking out for those things and then, um, you know, watching some of the geopolitics. I mean, these, these are very, uh, especially with, uh, with COVID, uh, and emerging from, uh, from this, hopefully emerging from the, the pandemic and the impacts of it and how this all plays out, both in, in terms of everyone going back to, uh, you know, back to work, uh, how travel is impacted, how, you know, how countries inter- interact with each other, you know, which, uh, what, how the vaccine is going to be distributed and, and uh, across the world. I mean, all these things are going to impact how companies operate. And, you know, that's, that's definitely something that I think we're all, all paying attention to. Would you have, all right, so are you in a position, I don't, do you have advice for, for, for boards right now? 
given what we know now, should they be, I don't know, uh, setting up new committees or hiring a whole bunch of ESG people? I'm getting a little vague and broad there, but what could they, what could they do now with, with what we already know? You know, it's a great question, and it's a really important question that boards need to be considering, and particularly in areas like addressing climate change or looking at diversity and inclusion issues. I mean, many of these areas, some of these areas are have been a focus for companies for a long time, but others have paid less attention to them, uh, just given the, the challenges of operating and the, the economy that we've had in the last few years. So it's uh, you know, I think every organization needs to think about what can be done to prepare uh, both management for these new expectations and questions, both from uh, the regulators and possibly from uh, members of Congress uh, and and from the legislative side and pressure that could come there. And, you know, that, that means looking, you know, developing the, the data uh, internally, making sure that people know where they stand on these issues and to the extent that, uh, you know, leadership at each of the companies wants to move uh, in advance, uh, you know, how best to do that. Uh, and, uh, and there's lots of different ways, whether it's, you know, through the board and discussions of the board and raising these issues to very senior uh, management's attention. I mean, these are, it's critical uh, to get ahead of this, I would say, uh, and to do it early uh, in, in terms of what, what should be expected and to get the buy-in. Uh, because when the questions start coming and the regulations start being issued from the independent agencies and the executive branch, it's almost too late. You know, the consultation periods are very short. Uh, and as, as everyone, um, uh, you know, all the, all your members know, you know, oftentimes it's, it's challenging to get, uh, quick action from corporations as well. I mean, these things, their processes, their discussions, there are a lot of stakeholders, uh, in reaching consensus. It's even, uh, it's doubly complex for global institutions uh, that operate in various jurisdictions. So, you know, thinking about these issues now uh, is really, really important for everyone getting to the getting to the end of this in a way that is productive for for all of us. As outrage over Robinhood's decision to limit trading stocks like GameStop and AMC hit a boil, questions around market integrity, particularly on the clearing and settlement end, came thick and fast. Our next guest, Computer Shares Paul Kahn, says we'll need some serious regulatory changes to maintain integrity of that corner of the market. But Jeff and Paul begin their conversation on the COVID-inspired move to virtual shareholder meetings. Khan gives the industry decent marks as companies scrambled to get VSMs up and running last year. Still, there were bumps in the road and lessons to learn. Two industry groups have been set up to shape best practices in the virtual format. Jeff and Paul begin their conversation on the problem areas these groups identified. Paul Kahn, uh, welcome to um, Governance Matters. Thank you very much, Jeff. Thank you for having me on the show, on the podcast. Paul, uh, last year, companies scrambled to uh, get virtual shareholder meetings uh, up and running in the face of COVID. What lessons have we learned from that whole experience? 
That's a great question and a very, very timely question. And, you know, at, at ComputerShare, not only did we get the opportunity to observe it, we were absolutely um, in the thick of things, as many people were as an industry and as a, as a nation, I guess, the world, as we all pivoted away from working in the office and doing things the way we ordinarily would to working from home and moving into our BCP um, arrangements. Overall, the industry, I think, did very, very well um, in the circumstances. So looking back, I think the industry really can, you know, you would give it a tick, in, in terms of uh, did, did we pass as an industry? I think the answer is yes, we passed as an industry given the circumstances. Are there lessons that are learned and improvements to be made? The answer to those two questions um, is very much a, a yes and, and, and a yes. I think the, the first, well, I guess if I step back a, a, a little bit, um, two working groups had or were formed in 2020 to look at the virtual shareholder meeting format. Um, the first was coordinated through Rutgers Law School and was facilitated by Doug Char, and it was co-chaired by Amy Boris of the CII and Dallas Ducky of the Society. They brought a group of issuers and institutional investors together, really to look at what had happened during the season, what improvements could be made, so forth and so on. And that led to the publication of what I call the Rutgers Report. It was released on December 10th. Um, your listeners can Google it um, and find it on, on the web. And that really deals with practices going forward, what companies should be planning to do. Um, and what investors are expecting going forward. Now we have the opportunity to plan for things. So that's really the key. That, I mean, obviously the key difference going into 21 as compared to um, 20 is we're going into the proxy season knowing that virtual shareholder meetings are uh, likely to be required. Um, there's been a lot of um, industry experience across the corporate client base, the institutions and retail investors and the service providers who are delivering these formats. So a very, very different um, environment. The Rutgers report lays out some key practices for what companies should do and what investors um, expect, particularly around the area of Q&A. I guess that's really the, hmm. the key focus of the Rutgers report and how the Q&A should work. The second industry group looked at access. Um, there was a lot of noise in the last season about how beneficial owners would access platforms um, hosted by companies other than Broadridge. And there was you know, a, a lot of, you know, a lot of frustration that beneficial shareholders could not put their control numbers into a virtual shareholder meeting that was run by someone other than Broadridge. So that was a focus topic of a second working group, also co-chaired by Dala Stuckey and Amy Boris, and that's looked at the access issue. And a group of people across the industry have come together to work out protocols for how platforms can talk to one another to make that a seamless exercise for beneficial owners as we move into this next proxy season. So they're kind of the key learnings around the Q&A and around 
um, access to meters. Let's take those one by one. What, what specifically, Paul, in, uh, on the Q&A, uh, was, the, uh, was the, I guess it was a hard learning? What was the learning there? Well, I think really a, a, lot, a lot of the, the issues really around transparency. So some investors were concerned that issuers did not answer all the questions. So there was some mm. concern around cherry picking um, of questions and, and not getting to all questions. And so I think Rutgers report kind of deals with that and talks about different ways in which companies can respond to that issue. And it really deals with everything from ensuring that you answer all of the reasonable, legit legitimate questions to running through whether you should put a transcript or a replay of the annual meeting on the IR website after the meeting. So there are kind of different dialogues there. Different companies will um, digest these recommendations in, in different ways, and it'll be interesting to see how the marketplace adjusts to them. I think this is a one to two, maybe even a three-year journey as best practice continues to evolve. What do we? Okay. What do we, are you getting feedback from investors on that? Is there or or particular activists? Uh, well, the exactly investors. The, I, uh, I think the I think the some of the investors were were quite vocal. I would say those who are more engaged uh, were more vocal about this. Uh, mostly, it was around whether all of the questions that were submitted were answered. Mm. I think to a lesser extent. Some of the parties that had questions weren't able to access the meeting, so that deals with the access issue. I can come back to that in, in a moment to keep the access issue separate from the, the Q&A issue. But it's mostly around does um, management respond to all the questions? There's a secondary issue of all investors be able to see the board as opposed to just hear the board. So mm. video is a key um, discussion point for this particular year. Last year, we know almost all of the meetings were audio only because that was really the way in which the industry could scale to deliver that many virtual meetings within such a short period of time. This year, I think you're going to see greater choice available to issuers as to whether they use um, video um, or just audio only. So being able to see the board, um, the CEO, seemed to be a, a key issue that hmm. investors were interested in. But also, really, I think it's just the transparency. Of, do the questions get answered? And is there some post-meeting disclosure of the, the Q&A session? Okay. Uh, and then uh, the issue of beneficial owner attendance. So this, this is a really key development for the industry as we move into 2021. Um, 12 months ago, as we were moving into the proxy season, there was a real challenge insofar as not all virtual shareholder meeting platform providers, and I'll take computer share as an example, um, we don't have access to the control numbers issued by a Broadridge or a Mediant or another proxy service provider. So mm -hmm. we can very easily give access to registered shareholders. We know all of their details. Um, they have a right to enter the meeting. It's a very seamless process for someone who is a registered shareholder to come through into our virtual shareholder meeting platform. Uh, but a person who is holding their shares through a bank or broker 
is not visible to the issuer, not visible to the transfer agent, and therefore you need to understand who that person is in order to let them into the meeting. So it was a real challenge last year. Um, we, with our clients, set the expectation that if you weren't a registered shareholder, you should ask your broker for a legal proxy, and the legal proxy would, in effect, confirm that you're a shareholder in the company, and it would allow you to get access to the virtual virtual shareholder meeting by virtue of having a legal proxy and then a control number issued by, in this case, computer share. But we were in a pandemic that was considered to be a clunky, um, an inefficient process by many. Um, I suspect many parties that complained didn't read the access rules mm. that some companies put out in, in this particular area. So, But there, uh, overall, even if we allow a piece of paper to be communicated to us by email or a PDF which contains a legal proxy. That still wasn't good enough for some. So, you know, we listened to that. It created a lot of noise. We're not the only party that was targeted for criticism. Essentially, everyone other than Broadreach has the same issue because they don't have access to that street name data. So all parties, including Broadreach, have worked hard over the last six to nine months to work up a new protocol that would allow our systems to talk to each other behind the scenes so that a client of a broker that is a beneficial shareholder in an issuer that we're running a platform for can put its control number into our virtual meeting platform and come in almost as if they were a registered um, shareholder. And I hope that will take a lot of noise out of the um, situation this year. This issue of market plumbing, it whole folds into the whole GameStop affair. Um, do you want to turn to that, Paul, or, or is there anything else we can add about virtual shareholder meetings? There's, there's one point that I would add, and that is around a dialogue, a, a dialogue between shareholders and the board. Some um, investors very much want to see the board when the board is, or the CEO is presenting um, a corporate message to the investor base at the shareholder meeting. So audio um, is considered to be okay, but not the best format for um, some of these investors. So I think there is an expectation that video will be used. And I think we'll see this more and more over the next one, two, three seasons. And I think audio only will ultimately um, fall away other than perhaps for some of the smallest um, companies who might prefer it just on, on cost ground. But I think uh, yeah. that's the direction we're heading more and more um, video. But the Q&A piece is really key. I think I, uh, I mean, I listened to an interview that Carl Hagberg gave last week and you know, he, his point was very much, I think it is, it is really valid, that investors this year are looking for a dialogue with the company. They're not looking just for a simple, here's my question that I type into a, tap box, a chat box, um, and then there's a response and we kind of move, move on. Now, his point was investors are looking for an experience which is as close as you can possibly get to an in-person meeting using this particular um, technology. And we know it's not in-person. There are pros and cons. You can bring a lot more people into these meetings than otherwise might turn up to a Mm. A, a, an in-person meeting. So there, there, there are pros and cons, but I think the, the key issues around the dialogue and 
that's what investors, certainly some investors are looking for with the opportunity to both see the board and have a two-way exchange. So it'll be very interesting to see how practices evolve through 2021 into 2022. I think this is an area where there'll be a lot more discussion about best practice and it will evolve over a you know, a one to three to five year period. I think I think it's, it's, it's not rocket science. Yeah. The technology is there. I think it's inevitably going in that direction. Anybody who, who doesn't will be seen as uh, suspicious almost. Yeah, I, I, I think that's probably right. I think there is, you know, there's a trust issue from the investor's perspective. I think there's been a fear issue from some of the issuer's perspective because it's been the first time they've really mm-hmm. used this. I, I think as everyone gets more and more comfortable with these technologies, and, and let's face it, most of us have been using these technologies to run our professional and even our personal lives over the last huh. 12 months. So everyone is a lot more comfortable and there's no reason why the AGM format shouldn't be done within this uh, environment. There were some technology constraints last year. I think they are um, going to become less and less. I think we will see more video this year and I think that's just a trend that will continue. So make sure your board gets uh, some some media training or at least uh, on camera training. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Which feels a bit ironic given we're doing an audio session, but uh, yes. Oh, right. audio certainly has its place. Yeah, um, it really does. Maybe really not at AGM. Totally so. agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, the the whole uh, game GameStop affair. There's there's obviously something wrong, right? Uh, you you point out in in some of your blogs the. Uh, uh, that our current clearing and settlement system has failed uh, and, and has clearly shown in the whole GameStop affair. What is the, uh, how, how do you fix it? What is the problem there and, and, and how do you fix it, Paul? It's, it's a big question and I wouldn't go as far to say as the system has failed, the clearing and settlement system has failed, but I do think there are some weaknesses in the system and the system, the market system overall, I think needs to be looked at. And when you get extreme situations like this, people first start asking the question, well, how did that happen? How could that have happened? And there are two sides to every story. Um, and I'm sure we're only just starting to really scratch the surface to, you know, see a fact-based um, discussion and you know, it'd be interesting. There's obviously a um, a hearing this Thursday down in, in in DC, and I know many people will be watching that. It might end up being one of the most viewed virtual uh, forums uh, for, for for some time around this particular you know these financial services um, topics. But anyway, is there? Market failure. I, I don't think there's been market failure, but I think people are scratching their heads, and certainly I'm one of them, to say, how can you get to a situation where the short position in a company is in the circa 140% of all shares that are being issued? That, to me, as um, a market professional, and I've been in the markets for you know, really 40 years. I've worked in three time zones. When I see a stat like that, it makes me think that something hasn't gone quite right. Maybe everyone has, you know, um, conformed with rules and regulations, but maybe the rules and regulations just a little bit out of date. So that's why I think it it needs to be looked at. Um, you referred to some of the things that I've written about this. 
my comments really are to try to ensure that there is a very balanced discussion um, in this area. I think a lot of the focus is around the piece that is really seemingly quite new, which is around Reddit and Wall Street bets and Robin Hood and how you know the many Davids took on the Goliath as the buyers, the retail buyers challenged this large short position that was in the market. Um, and you know it's perhaps not surprising that that happened given the short position was so large. So I think they were asking for it. We'll need to. Well, there are a number of things I think that are going to need to be asked as a result of this. And one of the questions is going to be the retail crowd and how it organized itself and whether it was acting in an appropriate way. Well, you know, the facts will ultimately determine that, but the same set of questions really need to be focused on the sell side to say, well, how did we get into this situation where someone could sell or some group, small group, could sell so many shares that don't actually exist? So it it raises some really fundamental questions about shares that are in the um, street name system. And that, I think, from my perspective, is one of the most worrying things about this particular issue. And I'm looking forward to hearing what people have to say um, so that you know, ultimately the, the grown-ups that are in charge can make some balanced decisions about how the system should operate going forward. And you're starting to see some recommendations come forward. You know, some people are saying, well, we need to move to a blockchain environment. I, you know, I, I'm not sure whether that's right. And if it is right, I'm not sure it can happen Quickly, you know, others are saying we need to move to a real-time settlement system or a T0 settlement system. Again, that's a multi-year project. If you look at the time it took the U.S. market to move from a T plus three settlement cycle, so that trades settle three business days after they're affected, to a T plus two settlement cycle, you know, that was probably a three-year project. So going from T2 down to T0. Yeah, I, I, I'm guessing, but I, I'm assuming that's a three-plus, you know, maybe a four-year project. So, why? Pardon me, Paul, but why is that such rocket science? Why? Why don't we have a, a, a essentially instantaneous system, trading and, and settlement system? <laughs> I wish I wish I knew the answer to that. Okay. There are <laughs> there are there are many interests in the marketplace, and it seems to me the voices that are heard loudest are those that provide liquidity and and capital. Mm. And when you bring all of the different players into a marketplace, they seem to prefer a marketplace where trading is real-time and therefore settlement is a post-transaction event. And historically, you know, it's been days after the trade. There are others, however who believe that technology exists where you can settle at the time of the trade, and that's true. Uh, the question is really twofold. If you implement that immediately, assuming everyone could digest it, and I, I don't think they can, uh, but if you were able to implement it, would that stifle liquidity? And therefore, you know, others would say, well, we actually, we don't want to lose that liquidity. Um, so it, it really gets down to what problem are you trying to solve, and that's why this needs to be done 
in a coordinated way across the exchanges, the DTC, you know, the banks and brokers, the transfer agents, the, the regulators to ensure that we move in lockstep to a better system. And I think what this snafu has demonstrated is, you know, something went wrong, something went haywire in the system. And even if everyone did play by the rules, then the rules may need to be tweaked because this leads to perverse outcomes for companies and, and indeed investors. I mean, it's the volatility in this GameStop um, stock. It just, you know, it's incredible. Definitely loss of confidence in the system. Um, so, so you'd think these vested interests, I mean, what would it, what would it take to bring them on board um, into sort of a wholesale system upgrade? Could they be enticed or bribed or coerced? Uh, I don't know. How would the... How well, I, 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 I don't like the words bribed or coerced. <laughs> I, I should know. The, 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 no, the regulators... And the industry stakeholders, which are the exchanges and, and the DTC and, and the key market users, need to come together to determine what needs to change. In, in my view, there are some changes that might be needed just to improve the settlement discipline within the marketplace before you even go to a T plus zero environment or a blockchain environment. So I think what we need to do is let's get all the facts make sure everyone understands what they are. It needs to look at the buy side of the environment. It needs to look at the sell side of the environment. And to the extent that there are gaps, the industry should work collectively to, to fix them. And it, it might need some form of cross-industry task force to enable mm. that to happen. And so not just the speed of um, the infrastructure, but um, as you point out, um, there, are, there are other remedies to, to this, uh, what, what the GameStop has uncovered things like short interest reporting and, and more transparency of, uh, of ownership? Well, transparency is a key issue and your listeners, um, I know, will have followed the 13F um, conversation throughout last year with tremendous interest. Hmm. Um, the system overall, um, both in terms of clearing and settlement and, and ownership within the street name, environment really is quite opaque and I think that is something that needs to be dealt with. Issuers deserve to know who owns them and who's transacting in their securities. Um, it is, I think, archaic for issuers to have to wait you know, quarterly to, to understand who the um, institutions are when shares can, you know, trade backwards and forwards in, in sub-milliseconds. So it's the, the the framework for transparency is just completely out of step with modern markets, and, and that needs to be addressed. That's a, that, I think that's that's a key reform. Um, and yet there are a whole different set of vested interests in there that would uh, would, would not like to see that. There, there are, but I think that there has to be a way to balance up the needs of traders who want privacy, you know, in terms of their trading Pattern. They certainly want privacy from from other traders and investors, mm. and kind of governance rights and obligations as between parties that are investing in, in, in a company and, and and the company. It's somehow we need to unpack those two different issues, and it seems to me just for too long we've been focused on 
you know, markets becoming as efficient as they possibly can without really addressing these issues of um, ownership rights and, and governance matters. And yeah, they, they need just to be brought back together again and mm. start from first principles, in, in my view. And, and how urgent is it to, uh, to, uh, to, to fix this whole process? Um, it's just going to happen well, again and again, right? <laughs> I, I, I think I really think that depends on whether you think the GameStop issue will blow over. If you think it will blow over in the next thirty to sixty days, then oh no way! Maybe never underestimate the power of spite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, if if I, you know, my my sense is people are going to be talking about this for a considerable period of time, and therefore it will be the catalyst for some real reforms in the marketplace. I think there will be short term to say, how do we ensure this doesn't happen again? And are all of the reporting frameworks and regimes um, appropriate? And I think there will then be a separate dialogue about, do we need to modernize the infrastructure? And I think that's more of a medium term discussion. They do fit together, but one won't necessarily repeat the other. If we just have a conversation about how do we move to a T zero settlement cycle? We won't necessarily solve the issue of GameStop and short selling and reporting and short interest, etc. So I think these are two components that need to be tackled separately, and they both need to be resolved in order to deliver a better outcome for all users of the market. And that's your Governance Matters podcast. Our thanks to BNP Paribas' Jeffrey Siegel and Computer Shares' Paul Kahn. Before we go, a quick reminder. Thursday, May 6th, we hope you'll join us for an interactive virtual experience covering all the big questions now facing governance professionals. Governance Priorities 2021. It's no ordinary webinar. Check out corporatesecretary.com and book your place now.